invite you to turn with me this morning to the morning's text in James chapter 5, verses 16 through 20. If you don't have your Bible with you this morning, you can find that on page 1438 in the pew Bible in front of you. James 5, 16 through 20. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. One of the things that this text makes very clear is that sickness and sin happen in the New Covenant community. Someday that's not going to be true. Someday all sin and all sickness will be put away and the former things will be no more. And many of us cry out, hasten the day, let it come, Lord. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. But as long as this age lasts, as long as this age of futility and groaning and waiting, is called in Romans 8, those who have the Holy Spirit groan, waiting the redemption of our bodies. As long as this age lasts in this community and all the other Christian New Covenant communities, there will be sickness and there will be sin. And this text addresses the question of, how you live as a new covenant community in view of the fact that sin comes and sickness comes in the community. How do you preserve a new covenant community in the light of of sickness and sin? And that's what paragraph four of our church covenant I need my bulletin here, is about. So turn with me to the back of the uh, bulletin. And I want you to see that as I read it to you. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense. That's when somebody sins against us. But always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. Now, today I could go in either of those two directions. That is, I could talk about how do we persevere as a community in the face of sickness, and the other one would be how do we persevere in the face of sin. And I'm going to choose the second to focus on this morning because I think we, over the past two or three years, have talked a lot about praying for one another, hands-on, for sickness. And I don't want to minimize it at all. In fact, I want to instead intensify our sense of expectation and our faith and our love for one another as we lay our hands on each other and pray for each other. I want the prayer teams that gather with you at the ends of these services and stand up here to feel a sense of destiny and a sense of divine appointment. They're going to be here this morning with their little badges or the people that are standing on either side ready to pray for you. And if it's a physical thing, that's fine. They would love to ask the Lord to heal you or if it's an emotional thing or any other kind of problem or burden that you bring into this service or that arises in this service, 
They're there to praise. I want so much to cultivate that and strengthen that that I was talking to some of the leaders a few uh, days ago, and we've decided to gather all the prayer team people, past, present, and maybe future as well, at my house in a kind of prayer teams in the manse. At the beginning, I think April 2 is when we're going to do it. I want to just kind of charge the batteries and stir up our expectations again that God's not going to do anything significant in this church except by prayer. So when I say I'm not going to talk about praying for the sick this morning or how to maintain this community in view of people being sick, it's not because I minimize that, okay? Because I can only do so much in one message. We've done more on that than verses 19 to 20. I'm going to focus on verses 19 to 20 and ask the really harder question, I think, of how do you persevere as a new covenant community in view of the fact that there is always going to be sin in the community. That means focusing on verses 19 and 20 rather than verses 16 to 18. Now, there are four crucial things that I see in these two verses that instruct us concerning the maintenance of life and hope and joy in our New Covenant family in view of the fact that sometimes we slip into sin and start to move away from God. The four things are these. One, covenant truth. Two, covenant vulnerability. Three, covenant warnings. And four, covenant security. So let me take those one at a time and direct your attention to this text. First, covenant truth. The first point is a very simple one, and yet it is profound and, unfortunately, in our culture, very controversial. And the first point is this. There is truth. And therefore, there is error. And therefore, there is a way to live in accord with truth called righteousness, and a way to live in accord with error called sin. So just, that's it. There is truth, and there is righteousness. There is error, and there is sin. And our church covenant is based on this profound conviction. The church covenant is a public declaration to one another, to God, and to the world that we turn from error toward truth and commit our way solemnly to walk according to truth. The church covenant is a declaration that there is sin and there is righteousness. There is truth and there is error. There is good and there is bad. There is right and there is wrong. There is beautiful and there is ugly. And they're not the same, and they rule each other out as a way of life. Now, I say that's a controversial claim today, and I want to dwell on it because as I think, as I pray, as I talk to you, as I talk about your kids in public school, as I read newspapers, magazines, and books, and look at a little bit of television and watch our culture, I get the profound conviction that the most deadly attack upon Christianity today is not frontal. 
but rather is an attack way behind the lines on the very concept of truth. The biggest battle today is not between those who affirm that the Bible is true and those who affirm that the Bible is false. The big battle has to do with whether there is such a thing as true and false. Whether there is even a playground, a battleground out there on which two people can stand and argue for a point. That's where the big battle, I think, is being fought today. Let me give you two illustrations of how it is developing or has developed in our, our culture. And I do this to alert you and to fill your prayers with urgency about the role of truth in our culture, in our society, and hopefully make you one of the means by which it will be preserved. The first way it happens is like this. Modern secularists say, for example, that technology and science, the scientific worldview that has grown up over the last hundred years or so, make the Bible and its view of reality irrelevant at best. They consign the Bible to superstition, along with uh, Zeus and Hermes and Prometheus and animist cultures that say rivers have spirits and so on. It is no better than other superstitions. And thus the unique authority of the Bible is relativized. It's claimed to be universal in truth won't stand up, they say, under the modern criteria of scientific reality. Now, one response to that, over the last hundred years or so in America, in the establishment of our secondary schools and our higher education, one response to that has been to say, well, whether or not the Bible is true, a universal truth, whether or not the Bible is true, it is an indispensable and unique source and foundation of Western culture. And Western culture is our canon. Western culture is our, our parameters of what we teach and the, the way we think about American life. And it all started in the biblical world and came up through the Middle Ages and through the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the modern technological age and shapes everything that goes on in America today. So it's fitting that in our schools and in our universities, the, the body of, don't call it truth, the body of material that we engage in is Western culture. Now, the problem with that is that it has worked up until about the 60s. And in the last 30 years or so, alongside radical secularism that has gutted the universal claim to truth in the Bible, they say, there has emerged what we can call a radical multiculturalism, which now says, what's so great about Western culture? What's so great about your canon? What's so great about your tradition, Middle Ages, Renaissance, Enlightenment, technology? There's a huge world out there that doesn't care about your Western culture and therefore 
that argument for preserving the uniqueness and the role of the Bible in some position of authority or usefulness is no more valid than any other claim culturally throughout the world to its foundations. And so multiculturalism now, along with the radical secularism, has basically brought the whole house into disarray. And what lies in the future in the university and in the secondary schools and in American culture is anybody's guess, but it looks like everybody does what is right in his own eyes, and that's ultimately anarchy and the end of the civilization. God may have mercy and turn it around, but it won't be without a return to truth. Now, that's only one of the ways it's happening. Here's another one. This one may you may recognize even more evidently from the sources around you. Those who oppose the concept of truth say with increasing frequency today that all claims to truth have been, are now, and always will be political. They are politically driven. They are bourgeois notions left over from unenlightened days used to oppress people. In other words, truth is not what its defenders claim it is. It is a ruse. It's a, it's a cloak for an oppressive view by which men have oppressed women and whites have oppressed blacks and Western culture oppresses Eastern culture and rich oppress poor and Christians oppress Muslims and straight people oppress homosexual people and so on and on and on. Truth is not truth. It's a political ideology that is always used by the powerful to oppress the rich. And therefore, the issue today is that you nullify the quest for it by name-calling. You don't fight on the ground saying, your claim to truth is false because mine is true. That is not the way you talk. You say, your claim to truth is false is because it's chauvinistic. It's racist. It's bigoted. It's intolerant. It's provincial. It's narrow. You call it names. You don't fight it. Because when you fight, you assume truth and common ground. And certain kind of logic. The tragedy is that as this is going on, the power brokers... Thousands and thousands in the media, in the universities, in the various cultural establishments, the power brokers in America uncritically are buying it because there's enough truth in it to get it started. Truth claims have been abused. However, in buying it, there's a blindness to the fact that all that's precious all that's true, all that's beautiful in civilization is coming down with the derision of the concept of truth. It's coming down. Now, I dwell on this not because I care very much about American culture. I don't think heaven will be American. I dwell on it because the Bible is undermined by this. Christianity is undermined by it. Marriage is undermined by it. Honesty in business is undermined by it. Everything is undermined by it. Everything. 
Nothing will be left standing except the solitary, sovereign, king-like, self-exalting ego. That's all that's left. It's a high price to pay to be modern. To let the Bible be no more than the Communist Manifesto. Anybody remember that? Hammurabi's Code, Bhagavad Gita, Buddhist Sutras, Sayings of Confucius, Animus Chants. It's all the same. Jesus and all the rest. Pick your God. The second point is covenant vulnerability. The first is there's truth. It's rooted in God. It's revealed through Scripture. And it is precious beyond anybody's imagining in this world. And to forsake it is suicide for a civilization and for an individual. Covenant vulnerability simply means that in this community it is possible and it happens that people do forsake truth and sin. My brethren, verse 19, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, you see, it's possible for any among you, if any among you strays from the truth, the truth, the truth. Now here a problem rises. We've been talking about the new covenant, and I've been saying that the very essence of the new covenant is that the law is written on our hearts. The Holy Spirit is put within so that God causes us to walk in his statutes and he works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And now I'm saying that in the new covenant community, we sin. Well, what happened to God's writing? What happened to his spirit? What happened to his mighty working? Why doesn't he stop us from sin? I think the answer is that while God does, in fact, transform his people, he doesn't do it overnight, and he doesn't do it overnight intentionally. He could. He's God. If he can raise the dead and create the universe by the word of his power, he can stop me from sinning. He brought me out of darkness into light. Every millimeter of virtue that I have is the fruit of his labor. I don't doubt for a second God could, in the twinkling of an eye, transform John Piper into an angel. A sinless angel. He could do that. And he doesn't choose to do it. And if you say, why not? The Bible doesn't talk much about it. But it says enough to suggest perhaps that he wants to show us how utterly corrupt we are without him. And he wants to make us feel how desperate we are for him. That's my answer. He, he works with me slowly, bringing me forward, letting me flop in my own sin that I might recognize that I wasn't so good after all. 
that I was desperately in need of him and that without him, there would be absolutely no hope at all for me to make it to glory. I believe the new covenant promises that he'll change us. His spirit is within us. He is the sanctifier. All our virtue is his work. He just doesn't do it overnight. We are, therefore, vulnerable to sinning. And we mustn't be presumptuous or proud. We must rather pray for more grace and fight the fight of faith and pursue holiness. Which leads now to the third point. Covenant warnings. This is really sobering, this point. The covenant warning here in these two verses is that a person who is sliding into sin away from God may die without any covering for his sins, which means die guilty, unredeemed, unforgiven, and suffer, therefore, condemned in hell forever. That's the warning here. Verse 20, He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In other words, if a sinner turns back from his slide into sin, he will escape death. And he'll have a covering for all the multitude of his sins, namely Christ. In faith, there is a covering. Christ is our covering and his blood is our covering for our sin. But if he does not turn back, he will die and there will be no covering. This is utterly crucial to see. The New Testament writers do not assume that everyone in the local church is going to persevere to the end and be saved. They don't. The New Covenant writers, the New Testament writers, don't assume that everybody they call brother is a brother. Look at verse 19. It says, My brethren, brethren, if any among you strays. The writers of the New Testament, with a judgment of charity... Look out upon the visible church of people who have professed faith in Christ and they call them brothers and sisters. They give the benefit of the doubt. But they do not assume that everybody into whose face they look when they say brother is a brother. Rather, they warn the whole church that it is possible to stray away from the faith and to die uncovered. And the final proof then of who is in the faith and who is not, is not profession of faith, but perseverance of faith. James and John had the same assumption here. In 1 John 2.19, some people had left the church and left the faith. And here's the way John talks about them. Listen carefully. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. Perseverance is the proof of being really of us. 
but they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not of us. James and John knew that not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 7, 21. Therefore, in the new covenant community like Bethlehem, we must warn each other about the tremendous danger and deceitfulness of sin and how sin can become so attractive, so alluring and so numbing in its effects that we can get to a point that when we look back over our shoulder, what we see is so unattractive, we will never and can never return. That's the unforgivable sin. Getting to a point in your sinning that you have become so numbed to the wooings and drawings and stirrings of the Holy Spirit that you now will decisively resist Him forever and die with no covering for sin. And they will weigh you down to hell forever and ever. That is a real danger and a real possibility in the covenant community. It should make our small group so intense. It should make our preaching so passionate. It should make our, our Sunday school classes so real and so urgent and so earnest that we realize that what's at stake here is death. We're not a kind of breezy people. I stress this because there are so many professing Christians who toy with sin. I have had so many people in my office over the years who describe to me their sinning and I look at them with a kind of stunned face. Aren't you scared? And they say, scared, I'm a Christian. No conception that you can sin your way into hell as a professing Christian and church member and regular attender. No wonder there's no urgency if these things are not understood. If we think that by signing a card or praying a prayer or walking an aisle or sending in a, a tear-off return, that we're home. You're not home until you're home. Perseverance in faith is the proof of authenticity. Which leads now to the final point of covenant security. What is security then? Covenant security? Where is your security? Where's my security? I'll tell you, it's not in a motel in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in 1952 when I knelt beside my bed with my mother and she led me in a six-year-old prayer. That is not where my security is. Not in 10,000 years. My security is in the new covenant promise of God that He who began a good work in me finish. And if He won't, I'm a goner. I won't wake up a believer tomorrow morning unless God appoints it. Will you? How do you know you will? Is your will so constant that having been touched, it can't change? Only one thing will secure your will in God. God, our only hope is the new covenant promise of God that he who began a good work will finish it. Or, 1 Corinthians 1.8, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord. Or, Jude 24, 
He is able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish before the presence of His glory. Or, Romans 8.30, those who are justified, He will glorify. That's my only hope. God, not any experience in the past, not any track record in the past. It is possible, theoretically, for John Piper in ten years to abort, forsake the faith, thumb my nose at my wife and children, leave this church, go into sin, and say it was all a delusion, an ego trip. I like to preach. It is over. I hate the whole thing. I will live for myself and my glory. That's a theoretical possibility that ought cause me to sing that song, Jesus, let me not outlive my love to Thee. Did you mean that when you sang that this morning? Did you mean that? That's something we ought to cry out for day by day. Oh, Jesus, don't let me live longer than I love you because there may not be anybody nearby to come after me and say, John, return. Don't throw it all away. Don't make it all a hoax. Don't prove it was all a sham. Come back, John. There may not be anybody there. Our security is in God. But what this verse teaches, this last verse of James, is that God uses means to keep you. Let me read it now. And I'm going to ask you a grammatical question when I'm done reading verse 20. So all you students of grammar, I want to, I want to defend grammar here. Because there are, there are students who think grammar is one of those bourgeois, ideological things used to oppress the ungrammatical. <laughs> now, that's not true. That's not true. Uh, it is true that if you don't learn to talk good, you won't earn as much money. But there's a better reason. It might save your soul to know what a subject and a verb are. Or, in this text, it might lead you to save somebody else's soul. Let's read it. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, my question is, what's the subject of the verb will save? Who is the saver of the soul in verse 20? And the answer is the word he. And that is you, not God. point of this verse is that God uses means to save the soul. God uses human means to protect His sheep. Nobody will pluck them out of my hand. Why? Because I appoint another sheep over here to grab his leg. I watch my two dogs, our two dogs, sorry, John Pam. These two dogs we have play in the backyard. They grab each other on the leg and won't let go, and they pull. It is so beautiful. When you start to get over to the edge of God's hand as one of God's sheep, if you're truly a sheep, it ain't going to happen. Not because 
the other sheep don't matter and that God always with a lightning bolt blasts you back into the palm of His hand, but because verse 20 has taught these other sheep at Bethlehem to come after you and bite you on the heel. And if they don't, you might go into everlasting perdition and prove you never were a sheep. I hope you feel how serious this is in your small groups and in your friendships and in your family and your kids. We must not have an easy believism that says, I prayed a prayer one time, man. What's all this? What's this warning stuff? It's just Bible. That's all it is. God uses means to save His people again and again and again. Eternal security is a community project. My security is in you, in God. And I'm counting on you that if you detect in me a slipping into some kind of pastoral attitude that could be my stumbling, pride, money, inappropriate relations to women, um, excessive use of authority, you name it, if you detect any trajectory in my life, I'm counting on you. Bite my heel. Now, I will, if God gives me grace, not kick you in the face. That's a risk, however. Because when people are on the way out, and I, I, have, some, I have some difficult contacts to make in these days. When people are on the way out, they may be on the way out for good, and they might kick you in the face. But if you love people, you will go after them. And so I just want to close by asking you two questions. Number one, are you straying? Are you the one that needs to be rescued this morning? If so, I am the He in verse 20. I am God's messenger to you this morning. I am appointed for this moment in your life to say, would you please come back? Would you not throw your life away this morning? Would you turn and see the beauty of God's covering? There is a covering for your sin. Some of you are desperately saying, it ain't worth it. There's no use. I'm too bad a sinner. This book ends with a covering for sin. It ends with a magnificent canopy of Christ's blood. And the only reason you would be lost if you said, I don't want it. I'm out from under it. I'm gone. I'm out of here. And second question, do you know anybody like that? We all know somebody like that. And so, will you be the person in verse 20 who goes and turns them back this week? A letter, a phone call, a face-to-face tearful pleading, a tough word, and say, I want you back. God wants you back. I'm here on God's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Lord, I long for Bethlehem to be faithful, biblical, urgent, earnest, passionate, 
New Covenant community of love. Tough love as well as tender love. Love that can bite on the heel and not let go when somebody's slipping over the edge. Lord, please, draw those who are straying to yourself now this morning and make all of us ministers of your rescuing grace. Give us a deep and profound sense of security that he who called us is faithful and he will do it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.